from Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This is the GOAT, Tom Brady. Episode 1, Tom Brady and the Making of a GOAT. Twenty years, nine Super Bowl appearances, six Super Bowl championships, seemingly annual duck boat parades through the historic streets of Boston. And who could forget Gronk chugging an ice-cold beer on an ice-cold day? New England Patriots of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick are the greatest dynasty in NFL history. This is the story of Tom Brady and the dynasty nobody could stop until the Patriots stopped it themselves when Belichick offered no resistance to Brady leaving in March for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers of all teams. And quite frankly, Belichick pushed them out the door. Now the rest of the NFL hopes that Belichick coaching without the greatest quarterback in NFL history opens up the month of January and the first weekend of February after two decades of Patriots domination. First thing here, it's hard to get to the Super Bowl. It's even harder to win the Super Bowl. The Patriots' first four Super Bowl victories came by a total of only 13 points. Their first two losses were by a total of only seven points. They are only plus 14 points with a 6-3 record in the nine Super Bowls they played in during the Brady and Belichick era. In eight of the nine games, it basically came down to one play. Brady could just as easily be 9-0 in the Super Bowl as he could be 0-9. It helps to have the GOAT for that one defining play in the biggest games. Brady is the GOAT in capital letters when anybody with just slightly lesser skills would have been the GOAT in lowercase. He's well aware how things could have been different. The margin of error is so slim, and there was a couple plays in each of those games that if, if it goes our way, we win. And that's football, that's the way it works. And that's why it's hard to win Super Bowls. And that's why, you know, from a quarterback standpoint, to win four of them, like Joe Montana and Terry Bradshaw, that's how incredible that is. It's, right. You know, it just, it doesn't happen easily. And you could have the best team, but it doesn't mean you're going to win the Super Bowl. And we've had the best team and didn't win it. And we've had other teams like in 01 where we were the best team and we won it. Mm -hmm. And we just happened to win those games at that moment. Now Brady is trying to work his big game magic for Tampa Bay. This season's Super Bowl, by the way, is being played in Tampa. And the first 54 years of the Super Bowl, no team has ever played the game on its home field. Belichick tried to buy some time in the transition away from Brady by signing former MVP Cam Newton to a low-risk and potentially high-reward contract while at the same time evaluating if lightning can strike again with Jared Stidham, a lightly regarded second-year player, after he hit the Super Bowl jackpot with Brady in his second year. Welcome to The Goat, Tom Brady, a podcast about the greatest of all time. I'm Gary Myers, and thanks so much for listening. This is episode one, Tom Brady and the making of a goat. As the name of this podcast suggests, I will pull back the curtain on the greatest run of sustained success by one player and one team in NFL history, and I promise it will be a fantastic journey filled with never-before-heard stories and interviews. Tom Brady grew up in the Bay Area idolizing Joe Montana, 
And with all due respect to Joe, who was a perfect 4-0 in the Super Bowl with zero interceptions, history will show that Brady and his six rings and nine Super Bowl appearances is better than four rings in four appearances. Here's some background. I've covered the NFL since 1978, primarily for the Dallas Morning News and the New York Daily News. I was in Dallas for the last eight years of the Tom Landry era and actually sat with Tom in his office on the day after he was fired in 1989 and interviewed him as he packed 29 years of memories into cardboard boxes. But those stories are for another time. I was also the inside information reporter for Inside the NFL on HBO for 13 years and have written five books, including the New York Times bestseller, Brady vs. Manning, which gave me great insight into Brady, Belichick, the Patriots dynasty, and their unique and demanding culture. I first met Bill Belichick when he was a 27-year-old special teams coach with the New York Giants in 1979. I first met owner Robert Kraft shortly after he purchased the Patriots in 1994 for $172 million. As he all but stood in front of moving trucks to prevent his hometown team from relocating to St. Louis. I knew Brady casually through the first half of his career, but spent a lot of quality time with him when he was all in cooperating with me for Brady versus Manning. I wish I could say the same about Peyton Manning, and you'll hear about that in a later episode. I'm often asked about my most memorable interviews during all the years I've covered the NFL. It's funny, but two of them involve Brady, and let's just say they are quite a bit different. Before the New York Jets played the Patriots in the 2010 playoffs, Rex Ryan and the Jets players were complaining about Brady celebrating just a bit too enthusiastically in a December game against them after Brady's fourth touchdown pass gave New England a 38-3 lead on the first play of the fourth quarter. The Patriots hated the Jets almost as much as the Jets hated the Patriots. When Ryan was hired in 2009, he made a point to saying he was not there to kiss Belichick's rings. At that time, Bill had only three of them, and now he's got six. Prior to the Patriots and Jets meeting again a few weeks later in the playoffs, Ryan referenced Brady's post-touchdown fist pump towards the Jets' bench at 38-3 and derisively said, that's just the kind of guy Brady is. So I went into the Jets' locker room with my goal to find a player to colorfully explain exactly what Rex meant. I admit it. I was looking for a back page for the Daily News. The Jets were a bunch of trash talkers, taking their cue from their head coach. I hit the lottery with Antonio Cromartie, who had no use for the NFL's golden boy quarterback. Hey, Crow, I said, what kind of guy is Brady? Cover your ears if you must. An asshole. As far as I was concerned, it was mission accomplished in the life of a tabloid columnist. Brady's reaction was priceless and also accurate. He said, I've been called worse. The Jets won the playoff game, by the way. Brady himself provided the second highlight. When I interviewed him for Brady versus Manning, I was invited to accompany him as he drove from Gillette Stadium after practice to downtown Boston, where he was living at the time. I waited in the parking lot for him, and it must have been 20 degrees with a windchill of minus five, and I wasn't sure exactly when he was coming out. I couldn't afford to miss him, so I basically froze my ass off waiting for Tom Brady. We hit some traffic on the ride, thank goodness, so I was able to spend about an hour with Tom. 
He might be the best ever conducting an interview and giving thoughtful answers while driving and keeping his eyes on the road. I have lots to share with you from that interview, including the priceless look from the valet person when Brady dropped me off at a hotel. His eyes said it all. Is that really Tom? Put this all together, and I'm in a unique position to tell this compelling story. Let's start with Patriots owner Robert Kraft giving his perspective on the dynasty. My job was to keep as much of the core together as I could for as long as I could. And keeping Bill and Tom together for 20 years was uh, something I'm very proud of. It finally registered that Brady was indeed gone from New England when the Bucks sent out an avalanche of publicity shots in mid-June of Brady in his new uniform including a picture of him in his trademark, let's effin' go pose. It must have made Patriot fans gag on their clam chowder. The Patriots broke up the band after a disappointing end to the 2019 season when they lost in the wild card round at home to the Tennessee Titans. Clearly, Belichick wanted to move on from Brady, who turned 43 in August, and Brady subsequently made it very clear that he approached his 20th season in New England as his final season in New England. The number one warning sign? He placed his Brookline mansion on the market for $40 million one month before the 2019 season started. As it turned out, he was dropping clues in a high-stakes game of connect the dots, and the dots led him right out of town. Here's Brady at his introductory press conference after signing with the Bucks in March. He was asked what it would have taken for him to stay in New England. I don't want to talk about the past um, because that's not relevant to what's, you know, important in my, you know, future and what's going on this offseason for me. And like I said, I had nothing but two decades of uh, an incredible experience and um, learning from some of the best players and the best coaches and uh, the ownership of the team. You know, I think for all of us, you know, things in life can change and you got to be able to adapt and evolve. And with each of those changes become different opportunities to learn and grow. And that's where I'm at. You know, the transition was, I would say, is very emotional with a lot of guys that I've talked to that I've shared the field with because, you know, the relationships are what matter most to me. And, you know, I'm going to be friends with my teammates, my former teammates and coaches for the rest of my life. And, and that's not going to lead just because I'm wearing a different jersey. But at the same time, for me, the new jersey I'm wearing, you know, I'm prepared to give them the, every bit of commitment that I've had my entire career to be the best I could be to help this team be the best it could be. And I did say there's not one person that, you know, you, you know, that makes a team. It's every single person doing their job every day that's committed and determined to be the best. I'm a very disciplined, you know, quarterback. I try to, you know, follow through on you know, the things that I'm committed to, and I try to work every day to be the best I could be, and that's what I'm going to try to push my teammates to do, and uh, I'm just excited to get started. It was a seamless breakup. Brady wanted out of New England and away from the Belichick dictatorship. He's still as competitive as ever, but sometimes a guy just wants to have some fun while he's winning. And although Belichick still has not addressed why he didn't want Brady to be his quarterback any longer, He's known for emotionalist breakups when he feels a player's skill set has declined. Brady chose to look ahead rather than reflect on the past, 
Kraft is the emotional one. The night before Brady made his announcement public that he was moving on from the Patriots, he knocked on the front door of Kraft's house. He probably just walked over. They lived right next door to each other, and Kraft was crushed that those days were ending. Here's what he had to say about the reality of Brady leaving. He came to my house before he, you know, when he made his decision and, um, you know, told me. And then we called Bill and Jonathan after that. And just, you know, they're very sad. Um, He's a very special person, very high grade. Anyone who plays for us for 20 years and helps us win six Super Bowls, I will do the same thing for. And... You know, I facilitated him being a free agent. Could either stay with us or choose not to. And, you know, he chose not to, but it was, we had certain rights, you know, in the previous contract that we let go. So it was all his choice of what he wanted to do. So let's get started on the road to all those Lombardi trophies. The year was 2000. Bill Belichick had finally resurrected his reputation four years after getting run out of Cleveland as the Browns were moving to Baltimore. He was now confident enough to walk out on the dysfunctional New York Jets after 24 hours as their head coach, knowing he was wanted by Kraft and the Patriots. Belichick's press conferencing announcing his departure from the Jets was so bizarre that Jets team president Steve Gutman publicly questioned his mental state, and he was not kidding. I was seated in the second row that day in the Jets' second-floor auditorium at Weeb Eubank Hall on the campus of Hofstra University. One day earlier, when Bill Parcells stepped down after three years as Jets' head coach, which triggered a clause in Belichick's contract automatically elevating him from defensive coordinator to head coach, Belichick refused to speak to the media, claiming it was Parcells' day. That sent up red flags that something bad was going on behind the scenes, but it was written off as the dysfunctional same old Jets. By this point in their relationship, Belichick had grown so tired of Parcells and deferring to him so he could be celebrated for a day was not on his agenda. Belichick walked into the auditorium, disheveled and with a small piece of paper in his hand. Due to the various uncertainties surrounding my position as it relates to the team new ownership, um, I've decided to resign as the head coach of the New York Jets. He had written down that he was resigning as a HC of the NYJ. He didn't even bother taking the time to spell out the words. That's how quickly he wanted out of there. He was never one to waste words anyway, but this was ridiculous. He had a nervous tone to his voice. He gave a lot of reasons why he was leaving. But what he didn't say was that he wanted the Patriots job and he knew Kraft wanted him. Kraft had just fired Pete Carroll and faxed a request to the Jets the morning after the final game of the season, asking for their permission to interview Belichick. Request denied. The Jets informed the Patriots that Belichick was now their head coach. At just about the same time Belichick was plotting his escape to New England, which eventually cost Kraft a first round draft choice. Tom Brady had just played his final game at the University of Michigan throwing for 369 yards and four touchdowns in Orange Bowl overtime victory against Alabama. But three months later, famously slipped all the way to the sixth round of the 2000 NFL Draft, 
the 199th overall pick. Incredibly, he was the seventh quarterback taken in the draft. And almost as incredible, he was the seventh player the Patriots took in that draft. Brady and Belichick. Belichick and Brady. And what about the contributions of Robert Kraft, who followed the same do-your-job mandate Belichick had for his players and let his coaches coach and his players play while he was busy building the most successful organization in professional sports and flaunting his relationship with Donald Trump at the same time. The NFL has well-established decades of dynasties. The Packers in the 60s, the Steelers in the 70s, the 49ers in the 80s, the Cowboys in the 90s, and most recently the Patriots of the 2000s and 2010s. It's convenient that the union of Belichick and Brady came to an end as that decade ended as well, tying this up in a neat little bow. The best decision Belichick made, of course, was drafting Brady. Despite his 20-5 record at Michigan, teams were concerned that it took Brady until his fourth season to get on the field in Ann Arbor, and even then, Wolverines coach Lloyd Carr tried for most of the next two years to get local phenom Drew Henson enough playing time to beat out Brady. Carr has faced a lot of criticism for not knowing what he had in Brady. But with Brady as the backup, Carr won the national championship in the 1997 season with Brian Greasy as his starting quarterback. Even so, Brady stood out as the highest rated player on the Patriots draft board when Belichick made the decision to take him. The wait was torture for Tom. There's still a reason why I was, you know, drafted that late. I'm still not the biggest guy. I'm not the strongest guy. I don't run the best. I don't, I don't throw the ball the hardest. I had a luxury of being under the radar. I also realized that there's people behind you that are trying to take your job just like I did. And you got to prove it every day. That's what I tried to do every day when I was in the position where I wasn't playing. So there's no entitlements. I never feel entitled to my position. I feel like I've got to earn it every day. I've got to earn the respect of my teammates every day. I actually think it was harder for those guys who are the first round picks and the top overall pick and because the pressure's on right away. Mm -hmm. They throw you in there and you go, okay, well, let's see how well you do. Or right. Usually it doesn't go well. There's too much for you to learn in too short period of time. So. so that was how the Patriots dynasty started. Kraft hired a coach nobody else wanted. Belichick drafted a quarterback taken even after the great Bill Walsh drafted G.R. Carmazzi from Hofstra. And Hofstra doesn't even have a football program anymore. Now, two decades later, and apart from each other for the first time, Brady and Belichick has evolved into Brady versus Belichick. The race is on to see if one can win without the other. The Bucks have not made the playoffs since 2007, which is also the season that Brady, then just 30 years old, was leading the Patriots to a perfect 16-0 undefeated regular season and came within a miracle helmet catch by the New York Giants' David Tyree of being remembered as the greatest single-season team in NFL history. That loss still haunts Tom Brady. During the Bucks' playoff drought, the second longest in the NFL behind the Browns, Brady married supermodel Giselle Bunchkin, has two kids with her, became a health and fitness fanatic, and split his pants playing golf on national television during the COVID pandemic with Peyton Manning, Tiger Woods, and Phil Mickelson. 
In that time, he also won his fourth, fifth, and sixth Super Bowls. The Patriots transition from a franchise that was a train wreck to the NFL's model franchise can be traced to when Kraft, a local businessman who made it big in the paper and packaging industry, bought the team in 1994 and ended the nonsense. To understand who the Patriots are today, it's important to understand who they once were. They were born as the Boston Patriots in 1960 as one of the original eight teams in the old American Football League. In a league that gained credibility when the New York Jets signed Joe Namath in 1965 and kept him away from the NFL, which eventually helped force a merger, the Patriots were continually an embarrassment. They barnstormed around the Boston area from Boston University's Nickerson Field to Fenway Park to Boston College's Alumni Stadium to Harvard Stadium in their first 11 seasons, desperately looking for a home until Foxborough Stadium, a godforsaken structure with aluminum bench seating in the unknown suburb of Foxborough, halfway between Boston and Providence, rose out of the ground in 1971, finally giving the Patriots a place to call their own. The stadium cost $7.1 million, which, truth be told, was about $7 million too much. It was a dump from day one. Kraft became a Patriots season ticket holder when the Patriots moved to Foxborough. I attended the first ever game there, a preseason game against the Giants, and even when it was new, it was a dump. The two-lane access roads on Route 1 in and out of the stadium were a traffic nightmare. And by the way, they still are. Kraft's wife questioned his sanity in 1985 when he purchased a 10-year option on the 300 acres of land next to what was then Foxborough Stadium. Then he doubled down in 1988 and paid $25 million to buy the stadium out of bankruptcy court after the Sullivan family, the original owners, took a financial beating promoting Michael Jackson's victory tour. Thriller indeed, right? The lease on the stadium ran through 2001. The Sullivan sold the team to Victor Kayyem for $83 million in 1988, and Kayyem then sold it to James Orthwine for $110 million in 1992. Two years later, Orthwine offered Kraft $75 million to buy out the final seven years of the Patriots stadium lease. Orthwine wanted to move the Patriots to St. Louis, where he lived. If Kraft had accepted the offer, it would have represented a nice $50 million profit on his investment. The Kraft rejected Orthwine's offer and instead offered him $172 million to buy the Patriots, which at the time was the most money ever spent on a sports franchise. Orthwine ran to the bank before Kraft would have a chance to change his mind. In 2002, Kraft privately financed the stadium for $325 million with none of the dreaded personal seat licenses. He built it on the land he had purchased. The old stadium was knocked down and turned into a parking lot. For some reason, Kraft was thrilled with his purchase. He owned the team, the stadium, and the land next to the stadium. And by the way, he inherited Bill Parcells, who had just completed his first year with the Patriots after winning two Super Bowls with the Giants. Kraft knew that the Cowboys were losing $1 million per month when Jerry Jones bought them in 1989, and Jones turned them into an ATM machine within a couple years and was winning Super Bowls. Why couldn't Kraft do the same with the Patriots? Well, he did. The Patriots are now worth $4.1 billion, 
And Kraft has been to 10 Super Bowls since Jerry Jones's Cowboys have been to their last. So my dream was in buying the team. I, had, I was passionate about it, and I wanted to see something where we had a chance to make the playoffs. My goal every year was to try to make the playoffs, because then if you make the playoffs, you have a chance of doing anything. And so I'm pretty proud. Uh, you know, we did a little bit better than I thought, because in 26 years, you know, we've had, I think it's 27 home playoff games, and we've gone to 10 Super Bowls, so... It's pretty cool that that ratio is a pretty special ratio. He thought he won the lottery of Parcells, a Hall of Fame coach. He was giddy. He admired Parcells from a distance, but the up-close view wasn't so good. Kraft runs his businesses by delegating to his managers, and since he was just a football fan and not a football savant like Parcells, he was counting on Parcells teaching him the football side of things. Kraft found out quickly Parcells had no desire to be his mentor. Even so, he loved it that Parcells was his coach. Parcells had drafted Drew Bledsoe first overall the year before, and New England finished the season strong by winning its last four games. In the elevator at Foxborough Stadium following the final game of the 1993 season, Kraft turned to his son Jonathan and declared, we can't let that team move. So he bought them. But Parcells was set in his ways. Orthwine was an absentee owner and allowed Parcells to run the franchise as he wanted. Kraft and Parcells' first season together, however, was a success. The Patriots made the playoffs but lost in the wild card round in Cleveland to Belichick and the Browns on New Year's Day, 1995. Meanwhile, also in January of 1995, high school senior Tom Brady visited the Michigan campus and fell in love. His high school coach, Tom McKenzie, had sent a recruiting tape to 54 schools and it caught the eye of the Michigan staff. It led to a scholarship offer, which Brady chose over other offers from Cal Berkeley and Illinois. He committed to Michigan on January 18, 1995. Back in New England, after the Patriots' playoff appearance, Parcells soon declared that he needed time to think it over whether he would return for the 1995 season. That drove Kraft nuts. He needed a commitment from the leader of his franchise, but Parcells, as mercurial as any coach in NFL history, was taking it year to year. Parcells viewed Kraft as a meddler surrounded by too many ambitious people trying to influence him. Kraft complained that Parcells was disrespectful to his wife and wouldn't even say hello to the banker who loaned him the money to buy the team when Kraft brought him on the team charter for a road game. Parcells wanted to coach the team. He didn't want to be shaking hands and kissing babies. By 1996, Kraft took away Parcells' final say in the draft and personnel. He wanted somebody invested in the franchise long-term to be making the big decisions. Parcells eventually offered one of his classic lines, if they want you to cook the dinner, they should at least let you shop for some of the groceries. His falling out with Kraft led to Parcells requesting that the fifth and final year of his contract for the 1997 season be eliminated. Kraft agreed. After Belichick was fired by the Browns, Parcells asked Kraft to allow him to add Belichick to his staff. Kraft interviewed Belichick at the scouting combine in Indianapolis 
and expanded his coaching budget to hire Belichick. Parcells went into the 1996 season knowing it would be his last in New England. Kraft agreed to wipe out the $1.2 million penalty clause for Parcells leaving early. Parcells took that to mean he could take a job anywhere in the NFL in the 1997 season. Kraft said, not so fast, Tuna, which was Parcells' nickname. You can leave, but you can't work for any other team in 1997 without New England granting permission, which translated, as everybody knows, into not without the Patriots being compensated. Parcells wanted out. Kraft didn't want him there anymore. Parcells and Kraft each knew he was entering his final season coaching the team. But the story was their little secret until the Boston Globe's Will McDonough, one of Parcells' best friends who later collaborated with him on a book, broke the story late in the 1996 season. The Patriots came out of nowhere and made it all the way to the Super Bowl, but Kraft accused Parcells of spending Super Bowl week in New Orleans focusing too much of his time on the phone talking to the New York Jets about his next job rather than preparing his players to face the Packers. Parcells' reaction to that was classic. He said to me, quote unquote, that's effing bullshit. Parcells left behind a very good team, but he just had enough of Robert Kraft. Here's what he told me. I mean, it was a fucking zoo. You know, you're trying to coach and he's wondering why you're not being polite to his friends. I'm not being impolite. I, I don't even know these people. You know, wrong place, wrong time. The best thing about the Parcells years for Kraft was meeting Belichick in 1996 and bringing him back four years later. Belichick is fortunate that Parcells threw him that lifeline. But at the same time in Ann Arbor, Brady was praying somebody would throw him a lifeline so he can get on the field and get his college career started before it was too late. He was so unhappy with his inability to get playing time that he nearly transferred and instead turned to a sports psychologist to help him out. On the next episode of The GOAT, Tom Brady, I will take you behind the scenes of his struggles at the University of Michigan and how New York Yankees owner George Steinbrenner nearly destroyed his college career. The Goat, Tom Brady, is a production of Diversion Podcasts in association with iHeartRadio. This season is written and hosted by me, Gary Myers. Executive producers Scott Waxman and Mark Francis for Diversion Podcasts and Sean Titone for iHeartRadio. Story editing by Scott Waxman with editorial direction from John Tuttle. Editing, mixing, and sound design by Mark Francis. Archival research by Brianne Murphy. Verna Fields is our technical producer, and our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA. Find Diversion on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Diversion Podcasts and let us know. What do you think of the show? Send us your questions, your comments, and even your critiques. That's Diversion Pods on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Diversion Podcasts. 